Welcome to this reading of the Poem of the Man-God. Thank you for joining me. The Poem of the Man-God is a private revelation of the life of Jesus of Nazareth as recorded by the visionary Maria Valtorta. Now out of print, this five-volume set of books is a narration of the life of Jesus beginning with the birth and childhood of the Virgin Mary through the public ministry of Jesus, his passion and resurrection, and closing with the Assumption into Heaven. The narration is interspersed with direct dictations from Jesus, messages for the whole world. These highly inspired visions were recorded by Maria Valtorta around the time of the Second World War, yet she did not consider herself the author. They were first published without her name, shortly before her death, and only posthumously was her name added. My sole aim with this podcast is to share the poem of the man-god with the world. I hope you'll enjoy them as much as I have, and if you do, please share them. Thank you for listening. Poem of the man-god, book two, number 189, The Son of the Widow of Nain. Nain must have been a town of some importance in the days of Jesus. It is not a large town, but it is well built, surrounded by its walls, lying on a low, pleasant hill, an offshoot of the little Hermon, commanding a very fertile plain which stretches towards the northeast. One arrives here coming from Endor after crossing a little river which flows into the Jordan, but neither the Jordan nor its valley can be seen any longer because they are concealed by hills which form an arch shaped like a question mark in this east. Jesus follows a main road which links the lake region to the Hermon and its villages. Many inhabitants of Endor walk behind him, talking to one another, animatedly. Only a short distance separates the group of the apostles from the walls, about two hundred yards at most. And as the main road runs straight to one of the town gates, which is wide open because it is broad daylight, it is possible to see what is happening in the inner side of the walls. Thus Jesus, who is speaking to the apostles and the new convert, sees a funeral coming towards them, with a great noise of weepers and similar eastern displays. "'Shall we go and see, Master?' ask many, and many of the inhabitants of Endor are really already rushing to see. "'Yes, let us go,' says Jesus condescendingly. "'Oh, it must be a boy. See how many flowers and ribbons there are on the byre,' says Judas of Cariath to John. "'Or it is possibly a virgin,' replies John. No, it is certainly a young man because of the shades they have used. And there is no myrtle either, says Bartholomew. The funeral comes out to the other side of the walls. It is not a, not possible to see what there is on the bier, which is carried shoulder high by the bearers. One understands that there is a corpse enveloped in bandages and covered by a sheet, only because of its outline and that it is the body of a fully grown person because it is as long as the bier. A veiled woman is walking beside it, weeping, supported by relatives or friends, the only sincere tears in all that farce of mourners. And when a bearer trips on a stone or rise in the ground or stumbles and causes the buyer to shake, the mother moans, Oh, no, be careful. My boy has suffered so much. And she raises her trembling hand to caress the edge of the buyer. And as she is unable to do anything else, she kisses the veils and the ribbons, which, blown by a gentle breeze, lightly touch the immobile cro- corpse 
Peter, sympathetic, his good, keen eyes welling up with tears, whispers, She is the mother. But he is not the only one whose eyes are shining with tears at the sight. Also the zealot, Andrew, John, and even the ever-merry Thomas have tears in their eyes. They are all deeply moved. Judas Iscariot whispers, If it were I, oh, poor mother of mine. Jesus, the kindness of whose eyes is so deep as to be unbearable, directs his steps towards the buyer. The mother, who is now sobbing louder because the funeral is about to turn towards the open sepulchre, pushes him aside resolutely when she sees that Jesus wants to touch the buyer. I wonder what she is afraid of in her grief. She shouts, He is mine! and looks at Jesus with staring eyes. I know, mother, he is yours. He is my only son. Why should he die? He was so good and dear. He was my joy. I am a widow. Why? The crowd of the hired mourners mourn more loudly, forming a chorus with the mother who continues, Why he and not I? It is not just that she who has born a child should see her offspring perish. The offspring must live. Otherwise, why was my womb torn to give birth to a man? and she strikes her abdomen wildly and desperately. Do not do that. Do not weep, mother. Jesus takes her hands, clenching them firmly in his left hand, while with his right one he touches the buyer, saying to the bearers, Stop, and put the buyer down. The bearers obey and lower the little bed, which rests on its four legs. Jesus takes the sheet covering the dead boy and pulls it back, uncovering the corpse. The mother shouts her grief, and in the name of her son, I think, Daniel. Jesus, still clenching the mother's hands in his, stands up, his eyes imploringly bright, the power of miracle shining majestically on his face, lowering his right hand, orders in the full length, full strength of his voice, Young man, I tell you, get up. The dead boy, enveloped in bandages as he is, sits up on the little bed and calls, Mother! He calls her with the stammering, frightened voice of a terrified child. He is yours, woman. I give him to you in the name of God. Help him to get rid of the squadarium and be happy. And Jesus makes the gesture of withdrawing. Impossible. The crowds rivet him to the buyer on which the mother has thrown herself, groping for the bandages, endeavoring to be quick, while the imploring, childish moaning repeats, Mother, mother. The sudarium and bandages are undone, and mother and son can embrace each other, and they do so without bothering about the sticky balms, which the mother removes from his dear face and hands, making use of the same bandages. As she has not clothes to put on him, she takes off her mantle and envelops him in it, caressing him all the time. Jesus looks at her. He looks at the loving group, close together on the edge of the little bed, no longer a buyer, and he weeps. Judas Iscariot sees his tears and asks, Why are you weeping, my lord? Jesus turns his face towards him and says, I am thinking of my mother. The brief conversation draws the woman's attention to her benefactor. She takes her son by the hand. She supports him because his limbs are still somewhat numb. And kneeling down, she says, You too, my son, bless this holy man who has restored you to life and to your mother. 
and she bends to kiss Jesus' tunic, while the crowd sing hosannas to God and to his Messiah, who by now is well known for what he is, because the apostles and the people of Endor have taken upon themselves to tell who he is, worked the miracle. And the crowd exclaim, Blessed be the God of Israel. Blessed be the Messiah, his messenger. Blessed be Jesus, son of David. A great prophet is risen among us. God has really visited his people. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. At last, Jesus can steal away and enter the town. The crowd follow and pursue him, exulting in their love. A man rushes towards Jesus and bows deeply to him. Please come and stay under my roof. I cannot. Passover prevents me from making any stop except those programmed. In a few hours, it will be sunset and this is Friday. Exactly. That is why I must reach my halting place before sunset. I thank you just the same, but do not keep me back. I am the head of the synagogue. So you mean that you are entitled to have me? Man, if I had arrived here only one hour later, that woman would not have had her son restored to her. I am going where other unhappy people are waiting for me. Do not be so selfish as to delay that holy joy. I will certainly come again, and I will be with you in Nain for several days. Now let me go. The man does not insist any more. He only says, As you said, I will wait for you. Yes, peace to you and to the citizens of Nain. Also to you, people of Endor, peace and blessings. Go back to your homes. God has spoken to you through the miracle. Endeavor through the power of love to have all your hearts restored to goodness. A last chorus of hosannas. Then the crowds let Jesus go, and he crosses the town diagonally and goes out into the country towards Esdralon. And the vision ends. The Confraternity of the Precious Blood, My Way of Life. Part 2, Chapter 2. Human Acts. Steps to Happiness Man's final goal is the vision of God. Human life is a journey from earth to heaven, a journey from this world of time and space to the timeless world of the vision of God. To arrive safely at this destination, man must have a means of traveling there and know the proper road or course to follow. If we imagine man's journey to God as a walking trip, then we can say that man walks to God by his human acts. Every creature reaches its own perfection by its own activity. Men reach God by their own actions. The proper road is the path of goodness and virtue. For how can a man reach God, the perfect good, except by seeking the good? The wrong road is evil and sin. The road map which enables man to distinguish the right from the wrong road is law. The divine invitation which prompts man to the journey is God's grace. To accomplish the journey successfully, we must understand all these things. In the present chapter, we shall consider human acts, 
man's steps to happiness in God. In later chapters, we shall be concerned with the proper path to God, the road map which outlines this path, and with God's invitation to the journey. Man walks to God by his human acts. Since, as we have seen, no creature below can reach the vision of God, it is obvious that man can reach this vision only by acts that are truly human, acts that are superior to the actions, e.g., of rivers or roses or rabbits. What is it that distinguishes man's truly human activities from the activity of the creatures below him? Man is different from everything else in the world of nature because he is free. He has control of his actions. If a stone is unbalanced on a mountainside, it must roll down. If a tomato plant is planted in good ground and given sufficient nourishment, light, and moisture, it must grow. If a hungry dog is given food, he must eat. But if the agents of a foreign country offer a hungry prisoner food on condition that he betray the military secrets of his own country, he can accept or refuse. This is because man is the only agent in nature who can know a goal as a goal and recognize the relation of suitability between a means to a goal and the goal itself. Because man can know that his final goal is the good in general or happiness in general. No temporary, partial good can force him to act. Because a man can know that treason will not bring him perfect happiness, he can refuse the bread which is the price of treason. Man not only moves himself to his own acts, as the dog may be said to do so, but he can move himself to his acts with the knowledge that they will lead him to his goal or turn him away from his goal. In his truly human acts, man enjoys freedom. The secret of each man's final destiny lies in the proper use of his freedom, in the proper direction of his control over his own acts. If men won the vision of God by one act, the story of man's journey to God could be told simply and quickly. But as experience shows us, men normally must make innumerable free choices in the course of a lifetime, and the proper direction of freedom is either hampered by opposing forces or given direction by the conditions in which the free act is made. If freedom is to be used properly, these forces or conditions must be recognized and their bearing on the direction of man's acts evaluated. Freedom is a spiritual prerogative. It frees man from the restraint of matter. It is like the flight of a bird whose wings free it from the earth and give it the limitless horizons of the upper air. A prisoner freed from jail or a sick man finally released from the relentless routine of a hospital feel light and light-hearted and free. But this spiritualizing effect of freedom is neither easily won nor easily preserved. The bird must work at flying or he will fall back to the earth and be broken. The released criminal must keep the law or he will find himself back in prison. The convalescent must guard his health or he will be back in the hospital. Freedom of will must be won and preserved against the forces in the world that oppose man's freedom. Freedom has enemies both within and outside of a man. Outside a man, there is force or violence used against a man's will. Within a man, there are fear, concupiscence, and ignorance, which can weaken or destroy man's freedom. The most obvious enemy of man's freedom, though in reality it is the weakest, 
is violence, forced applied to man from outside himself. A gorilla, with its great physical strength, might lay hold on a man and drag him into the jungle. Force prevents the man from running away. But force cannot prevent his will from wishing to run away. Force can prevent a man from accomplishing his desires by his external actions. But force alone cannot destroy the freedom of his will. The really dangerous enemies of man's freedom come from within himself. They are fear, concupiscence, and ignorance. The captured soldier who is threatened with physical torture may, through fear of suffering, betray the military secrets of his own army. Fear has made him do something he would not wish to do in ordinary circumstances, but his act is still voluntary. He is willfully seeking his own safety. Only a fear so great that it destroyed his power to know what he was doing would completely destroy his freedom. Through concupiscence or desire, a poor man in desperate circumstances may steal $5,000. The urgency of his desire has influenced his will, but his act of theft is voluntary. He wants the money. Desire can destroy freedom only when its strength and vehemence destroy a man's power to know what he is doing. The worst enemy of freedom is ignorance. Freedom is based on man's ability to know his goal and the means that lead to the goal. Ignorance prevents a man from seeking either the proper goal or the right means to the goal. Sometimes, it is true, the ignorance may be involuntary and inescapable. The driver of an automobile crosses an intersection after observing all the proper precautions, but suddenly a child runs into his path against the traffic light. The ignorance of the driver in running down the child is involuntary and so blameless, but sometimes the ignorance is voluntary. A man can refuse to learn or neglect to learn the income tax regulation of his country because he wishes to act against or outside the law. In this case, ignorance does not destroy his freedom, but leads him to abuse his freedom. In the search for perfect happiness, man must conquer these enemies of his freedom. Only knowledge of the true significance of his acts will give man the mastery of his acts. Only the proper mastery of his acts will lead man to his ultimate goal. The true meaning of a man's acts is determined not only by the inner freedom of his decisions, but also by the concrete conditions in which he acts. It may be correct for an engineer to blast rock from a hillside in order to build a road, but it is wrong if a party of picnickers is sitting on the rock at that time. It may be right to practice shooting a rifle in order to be a marksman, but it is wrong to do the practicing in a crowded street. The actual condition in which a human act is done can influence the direction of the act to man's ultimate goal. The chief circumstances will affect the significance of a human act for happiness are found in the answers to the questions who, what, where, by what aids, why, how, and when. So, for example, it is a good thing to celebrate Mass, but only for a priest, since he alone has the power. For anyone else to attempt to do so would be sacrilege. It is a bad thing to steal. It may be a good thing to take a bath, but not in the middle of Times Square. It is a good thing to give alms to the poor, but not when it is someone else's money. 
It may be a good thing to go to church, but not when your intention is to steal the money from the poor boxes. It may be a good thing to pat a little boy on the back, but not if you hit him so hard you break his backbone. It may be a good thing to play the organ in church, but not when the priest is preaching the sermon. So far we have seen that man achieves perfect happiness by his free, deliberate, controlled actions. The use man makes of his free will determines his final destiny. The direction in which his free will takes him can be influenced by fear, concupiscence, and ignorance within him and by the actual circumstances in which his acts are done. But to understand man's freedom better, we must consider the details of any human act, any free human act, any deliberate controlled act of a man involves the activity of both his reason and his will. It is necessary to see the interaction of reason and will in a human act in order to understand human freedom. Let us take an individual human act and examine it closely. A husband gives his wife $50 for her birthday with the command to buy something for herself. The wife realizes that the money is to be spent on something that will make her happy. She wants to be happy. She intends to be happy through spending the money. But should she buy the wristwatch she has wanted for a long time or a new Easter outfit? Either one would bring her happiness for the time being. She decides to buy the watch. So she goes to the jewelers, pays for the watch, and puts it on her wrist. For the rest of the day, she looks at the watch frequently, enjoying the possession of it. In this long series of actions, the reason and the will of the wife have each in their turn contributed to the accomplishment of her desire. When she first received the money, her reason recognized that something good was within her power. Her will responded by wishing this good. This is simple volition, the turning of the will toward good. Then her reason judged that this good that could be bought with money should be bought. Her will replied by intending to take some means to achieve this possible good. Her reason took counsel with itself about the means of achieving the desired good, it proposed that the desired happiness might be found in either a wristwatch or a new Easter outfit. Her will consented to the good in both of these means. Her intellect then made a preferential judgment in favor of the watch. Her will freely chose to purchase the watch. Her reason intimated to the will that she would have to go to the jewelers to get the watch. Her will commanded her to walk to the store, ask for the watch, pay the purchase price, and put the watch on her wrist. When the watch was hers, her will rejoiced in the possession of this good thing and in the happiness it brought her. In the long series of actions on the part of human reason and will, there are four things that are especially important in this chapter on the direction of human actions to the pursuit of happiness. First, the will always follows the intellect. Second, the will always seeks what is good. Third, freedom is found chiefly in the act of choice. Fourth, command is the guiding force of the human act. The will always follows the intellect. By itself, the will is blind. It is an appetite for what is good, a tendency to what is good. But until a man recognizes what is good by his intellect or reason, the will cannot reach out to the good. It might be said that even the intellect needs to be moved by the will, to its activity. Therefore, we have an impossible situation. The will cannot move without reason, and reason cannot move without an impulse from the will.
The answer to the difficulty in, is found in nature and in God, the author of nature. The first movement of the intellect or reason in man is due to nature itself. Man is plunged, body and soul, into the activity of the world. He cannot escape the impact of the world and of his own body on his consciousness. The pangs of hunger in the body of an infant force themselves into his consciousness, such as it may be, and he cries aloud for food. Thus, at the dawn of reason in the child, he apprehends that there are things such as food, clothing, parental love, etc., which are good for him, and his will, which is made for good, tends to these goods. From then on in his life we find the constantly repeated interaction of the reason and will, reason recognizing the good in things, and the will reaching out to these goods. The will always seeks good. It is a power made for the good, a constant tendency to the good. When we reflect that in fact men often seek what is harmful to them, it might seem a begging of the question to say that the will always seeks the good. The solution lies in the nature of the will. The will is a rational appetite. As an appetite, it is an inclination to something. When we will anything, we are inclined to it. We seek it. But every inclination is towards something suitable to the being with the inclination. The good is what is suitable to a thing. But the will is not only an inclination. It is a rational appetite. It seeks what is suitable insofar as reason recognizes something as suitable to man, as good for man. The will seeks, therefore, not simply the good, but the good as apprehended, as recognized as good by human reason. Hence, though the will seeks only the good, it is possible for man to seek something harmful to him because it appears to him to be good. So theft is really harmful to a man because it detours him off the road to perfect happiness, but it appears good to the thief, in one way at least, for it brings him the money he desires. In its tendency toward good, the will moves naturally and spontaneously. Good, in general, is the object of the will. In this respect, man's will is not free. Man's will can only move toward a good, or at least something apprehended as good, in some way. It is God, the supreme good, and the author of all the good in the universe, who moves man's will naturally to the good. Freedom, then, is not found in the will's spontaneous tendency to what is good. Rather, freedom is found in the choices man makes in selecting the means of achieving the good. In the example given above, the wife naturally and spontaneously sought the good which the money meant to her. But in the choice she made to purchase a watch as a means of achieving good, of attaining some imperfect happiness, she was free. If her husband, instead of giving her money, could have given her the vision of God, she would have accepted it spontaneously, but necessarily. In that case, her will could not have refused the perfect satisfaction of all its desires. But her husband could not make such a gift. Only God can make this gift. In this present life, only particular good things, not the good in general, nor the supreme good, which is God, can be attained by men. But since no one of the good things, or even the collection of all the good things in this life, can perfectly satisfy the will, man's will is free to seek or not to seek any particular good. 
The freedom of man's actions is found in his choice of means to attain the good. What is it that gives the will the impulse to set about the business of achieving the ends of desire? What moved the wife to go to the jeweler and purchase the watch? It is command, the message the human reason gives to the will that such and such is to be done in order to satisfy the tendency of the will to the good it desires. Command is the general, the guiding force of human activity. If a man did not command himself to act, he would never achieve his ends. We all know the ineffectiveness of the man who can never bring himself to do what he wants to do. Without the command of reason telling the will to take the steps necessary to accomplish its desires, man would never achieve his happiness through his actions. Through the command of reason, the will sets in motion the action of all the powers of man needed to accomplish the desired end or goal. Because the wife desires in her will to find imperfect happiness through the possession of a watch, her reason commands the will to set in motion the movements of her body in walking to the store, the actions of her reason in talking intelligently to the jeweler in making the purchase, the actions of her eyes and hands in paying the money for the watch, etc. Although command is then an act of man's reason, it presupposes an act of the will, the free choice of the will to seek good in a certain way. The problem of successful living, that is, of so living as to attain ultimately perfect happiness, is a problem of free choice and command. Man will reach perfect happiness by properly directing his human acts to that goal, but an effective direction is impossible without the proper free choices and command. To reach perfect happiness, man must make the right choices, and he must accomplish the object of these choices. A man can only accomplish this long journey to the vision of God by walking in that direction. He is walking in that direction when he freely chooses to do the things that lead in that direction and commands the execution of the acts that lead to the vision of God.